What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Atlanta, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Wednesday evening edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I'm excited. Falls quarterback room. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of moving parts. And who knows? It, it, like, I don't even know if we're having football this fall. I don't know if it's going to be this spring. I don't know if it's going to be this winter. I, I don't know. Everything is changing very quickly. But I am going to continue to operate on this podcast with the idea that it is happening until people tell me otherwise. Because then what's the point of even doing anything? Like, uh, until... It it comes to that. I'm not going to do it. So Ryan Shepard is here to talk about that. Ryan, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, excited to talk about some football. Like you said, I'm I'm working on the same mindset as you. Until they tell me there's no uh, football in the fall, that's what I'm I'm working off the assumption we're having it. Hoping at least. Yeah, I mean Tennessee's different because like I talked to a player um, when I was up there a couple weeks ago, and it, I. I had heard before it got announced by Pruitt that there was no positive test to this point. And Tennessee is like an outlier because um, yeah. so many schools have just, I mean, Ohio State just shut down North Carolina. Like it, there, a lot of schools have had significant number of cases or they're not revealing all the different ones or who's in contact with who. Or there's been like two, but they've been in contact with a lot. Tennessee is different. And it's interesting that um, Tennessee is kind of, on their own in that regard. I guess it just is a testament to the players taking this stuff seriously and practicing social distancing. But it's from what I've gathered, they really haven't done much as a group uh, this summer. Yeah, I've done a good job of keeping everybody separated. I think uh, that's really the only way it, it makes sense for them to have no one. I know they tested again this week and uh, still didn't have anybody. So it's, uh, it's been pretty wild. Yeah, Like you said, good uh, discipline by the team, not, not putting themselves into harm's way. Yeah, and um, it, that's good because uh, we need more of that uh, if we want football to um, happen this fall. My best guess right now, if I had to, I don't know where you feel about this, but for me, I'm leaning some conferences aren't going to come back. I think some will. I think the SEC is like the most obvious to do stuff, but I don't think yeah. it's happening at the time people think it is. I think everything's getting pushed back. That would be my guess. Is The first thing that's going to happen is they're going to delay the season. That's where I'm pretty confident that's what's going to happen to start off. Yeah, if you made me guess right now, I would say we'd probably be postponed at least a couple of weeks and then maybe just play conference games, possibly with a few 
you know, marquee matchups, but in non-conference, but I have a hard time thinking, uh, many of these schools are going to want to be paying multiple million dollars to Furman in Tennessee's case, Charlotte, you know, yeah. when they can't put anybody in the stands. Uh, so, and the way things are trending anyway, it's, uh, it looks like it could be very su- suspect, even if they wanted to, wanted to do it anyway. Are you going to be on campus this fall or no? I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm planning on coming back, uh, either way, whether we go classes, uh, in person or online, so I'm excited. Yeah, it's gonna be weird. I'll be there in a couple of weeks too. And um, I was—I mean, just walking around campus now—it's—it's it's eerie. There's just nothing there. There's nothing going I on. Bet. It's a really weird yeah. thing. And imagine kneeling with just like fourteen thousand and everybody spread out. It's just a weird, weird thing to envision. Yeah, but like that's best case scenario is like a tenth full with everybody spread out. I—I I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, I don't even know how you, you know, I've heard people say, have them wear a mask, you know, I think that makes sense, but I don't see how you're going to hardly enforce that, you know, make people wear a mask unless you have a lot of the, you know, maybe if you have, like I said, 10% and you have enough employees to space out and really yeah. be watching that. But and I mean, even you think about it, you have groups of four, how do you, you know, you're trying to balance having some people come in sitting in groups of four, some people sitting by themselves, how exactly all that works with social distancing. Probably like I said, if we have 10%, it probably wouldn't be as big as a problem. But if you, even if you get up to 25, 30%, that really becomes a, a tricky issue. Yeah, it's, um, it's going to be weird, but ultimately uh, let's hope for the best. Um, I want to talk to you about the QB room for Tennessee this fall. Uh <laughs> Very divisive figures in the Tennessee QB room outside of Harrison Bailey, who I think everybody's just all in on. But um, Jarrett Garantano, who is the real Jarrett Garantano in your opinion? Is it first half and just the first part of his career Garantano? Or is it who he was down the stretch last year? Who is it? I think it's it's somewhere in the middle, I guess, um, would be what I'd say. I mean, you really see even down the stretch when he – obviously put good second halves together. I guess South Carolina played in the first half, some Um, Kentucky, good second half. And then Missouri obviously started to play great the whole game. But even right after that, next week, Vandy, obviously it was rainy conditions, but struggled. Indiana game, he really struggled. So I am uh, hard-pressed to think he's really going to be able to consistently play like he did in those Kentucky-Missouri games. But at the same time, it's a guy who's never had two straight years under the same coordinator. And so much, so many mistakes that he made were such simple, basic mistakes that you would you would think he'd be able to clean that up as a fifth year guy. But I think until you see him show more consistency, it's hard to really have full hundred uh, percent faith and trust in him. Yeah, I um, I don't know. I was listening to the Vols Quest Rivals podcast, and they were talking about the different quarterbacks. And one of the things they brought up about jg and the reason that cheney and the coaching staff likes him a lot and prefers him is that he's like the only one they trust to like get up to the line of scrimmage look at the defense and know what the defense is giving them so yeah that's an underrated thing that people just don't see with garantano is that he is very very smart and he's very aware of what's being presented he's a veteran he knows what's coming he knows how to just check plays at the line and be like okay we're not gonna do that or to audible out of something like they trust garantano to see that and read and react and do that kind of stuff. Um, when you were watching down the stretch and you mentioned the Missouri game and obviously the Indiana game and stuff like that, but like, what did you see 
that changed in Garantano's game in the second half last year? I think for one, confidence was a huge thing. I mean, by the time he got to the second half of the BYU game, I think his confidence was was pretty shaken. And even when, you know, kind of middle of the year, Alabama, Mississippi State, I think it took him a while to, one, gain trust back at the coaches. Um, but more than anything, I would just say he was on time with the ball. That's really has been his biggest problem, holding on to the ball, not having good feel for really his Pruitt's first year, 2018. A lot of times it was the pressures that this offensive line wasn't very, very good. But last year, a lot of times on timing routes, you saw him missing, you know, guys who would have had a touchdown if he would have thrown it on time. I think that's the thing he improved on the most. Um, I also think Tennessee just got into a good rhythm, kind of figuring out what they were in the passing game down the year, taking shots to Callaway and really relying on Jawan Jennings out of the out of the slot and in a lot of big moments, big third downs. That's, I think that's going to be one of the biggest questions uh, they have to answer is uh, who's going to step up in those third down situations because last year you uh, you were pretty confident the ball was going to 15. So who do you think it is this year? Yeah, I think Josh Palmer's would be the obvious answer. I mean, just from how much he's played experience, but the fully step up, that'd be a big jump. So I think it's going to be something they have to sort piece it together with, you know, D'Angelo Gibbs, the guy I think is impressed in his one year on the practice field. Can you get something from him? Can you, you know, Ramel Keaton flashed at times last year. Bowl game was probably his best game in a year. I think he's a talented guy. And then Tennessee probably brought in one of the best three or four receiver classes in the country. And I think there's going to be at least opportunity to, to make an impact for those guys. Uh, I think Jalil Hyatt's uh, probably the one that I'd keep my eye on the most. Mm. So when you look at JG's game, what do you think is his biggest strength? And what do you think is his biggest weakness heading into this fall? I think his biggest strength, I mean, I think his arm strength, there aren't, you know, a whole lot of throws he really can't make. I mean, he's not Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball 65 yards down the field. He can make a lot of very tough throws. And I think that's what's so infuriating about him watching him if you're a Tennessee fan and if you're a Tennessee coach is just and it's his biggest problem is just inconsistency I mean you look at it about the worst throw he had last year is just to throw out in the flat to the running back how many times Tennessee things just crumbled for him when they were trying to pass I mean first play the game against Georgia State they threw a little swing pass and he throws it not very good and Ty Chandler just kind of barely catches it and then fumbles it I mean just basic throws you know, easy slant routes, easy throws out to the halfback. He needs to be just more consistent. And I think that's as a whole, what I would say is uh consistency is where he really has the most room to grow. What are your 2020 expectations for Garantano? Does he start every game this fall? If there is a season, obviously. If there is a season, I'll say he starts every game. Okay. But that's, I wouldn't put more than, 55% on that. And okay. I, and I would be surprised if he plays every minute of every game, you know, even besides injury, if he was healthy the whole time, I feel like he would run into a position where he would get pulled. And I was actually talking to someone this morning about it. What I think can be really interesting is, well, obviously we saw how now a lot of that was that their hand was forced, but Pruin and Shaney were pretty musical chairs with the quarterbacks last year. They weren't afraid to play multiple and multiple games or even, you know, three and if things start going downhill, he doesn't play well at Oklahoma week two and doesn't play well against Florida, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to make a move. But at the end of the day, with when you don't have spring practice, you don't have the whole summer for Harrison Bailey to get 
into a rhythm. And I think that was even just as important for Brian Maurer. I think, you know, obviously I haven't watched Harrison Bailey any other than just high school highlights and, you know, a couple high school games here and there. But I mean, Brian Maurer is a very talented quarterback. I think he's, he's pretty accurate. He, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a guy who I, it's basically all, all mental in my opinion for him. So he's another guy I think would be, would have been really beneficial to have a second year full off season um, in the program and just more practices. I think his ceiling is about as high as anyone's in that room. Now you're speaking my language. I am. Oh man. I am a Brian Maurer Stan. I will say all in on this guy. He is a um, Brian. If you're listening, I'm sorry. I mean this in the most loving way possible. Um, He's an absolute psycho. And I appreciate that because he makes games more entertaining. Like I never know what Brian he does. is going to do. Like he is a madman. He does not care. That guy. I mean, there's just. I don't. This comparison is very loose. So don't don't at me, Vols fans. Um, there's some Manzel stuff to him. Where like he'll run around yeah, and he'll do stuff, bit. and he just his personality is so exuberant. Where I'm like. The difference between him and Jared Garitano are unbelievable. Just their style and their demeanor and everything about them. But I understand why coaches are way more comfortable with Garantano than they would be uh, a Brian Maurer. Because with Brian Maurer, you just you can call whatever you want to call and you can game plan whatever you want to game plan. But I still would be uneasy just being like, what is, is how many of his stuff is he going to do that I called? Like Jim Chaney, I could see like Brian Maurer just giving yeah. him all kinds of headaches. Um but in your estimation, who is Brian Maurer? How would you describe him as a quarterback? Because I struggle to do it when I talk to other people about him and like why I love him. Because I'm just like the the thing about him is that he's just a ticking time bomb that I just don't know and I don't expect him to ever make it through four quarters. Well, it's funny, uh, kind of echoing the same sentiment there during the Gator Bowl. You know, he got in for a drive and I was sitting beside Noah Taylor in the press box and I said to him. During that drive, Mowry, they they got a field goal on the drive. He almost threw about three interceptions. I said, I said, I'm not sure how good Brian Mauer is, but when he's in, even when he's bad, he's entertaining. Yeah, Garantano is not entertaining. It's a lot. It's a lot more fun to watch watch Mauer when he's in. Um, but to answer your question, I think he's, we're on the same page. Like I would honestly he rather is, because like when Garantano is bad, it is excruciating. It is. So painful when he's not good and not taking chances and yep. just check down Jarrett. Like there is <laughs> football is ultimately and sports are ultimately an entertainment thing. And um good Garantano is just like this efficient, nice thing where you're like, Oh, this is how a, a, yep. a smart offense is supposed to look. This just <laughs> looks good, it works, it's it's kinda like Jake Frommy a little bit where you're not It is a little bit, yeah. And you're not like oh you're not you're not jumping out of your seat. You're not like, this is a lot of fun. I love watching this, but it's like a well-oiled machine where like Garantano could do the same thing in Georgia's offense the last couple of years. And I think he would have similar results to from, um, but it's just not, not the most fun. Brian Maurer, even when he's atrocious, like I enjoy every second he could lose to Alabama 56 to 14, but if he's playing every snap, it's going to be a very fun 56, 14. It. That, yeah, I mean, that's the absolute nail on the head. He's he's a guy who is, I think, very, very talented. Um, I mean, very good legs, too. Runs the ball well. Extends plays. I think 
you know, it's something kind of underrated about him is he throws the ball really well at different arm angles. It makes can help but make some very difficult throws. I, you know, think he played the first two or three drives in that Alabama game before he got hurt. I think it was maybe even the second play of the game. Someone broke through right up the middle and rushed right in his face, and he just whipped a nice sidearm throw, to, you know, check down to, I'm not sure, one of the halfbacks, I'm not sure who it was, and five, six-yard gain, and you're, you know, obviously not a big play, but you watch it, and you're like, that's no doubt a sack if Garantano's in. It's not a fumble sack. Um, but I think where his pitfall is right now is I think he's, he's pretty much a one-read quarterback, so you can't get too sophisticated with anything you know when he was in a lot of rpos and a lot of just basically one read which really limits what what he can do and you know you saw those issues i think he threw six interceptions and the two touchdowns and the one real bad one the the mississippi state game before he got hurt too in the end zone which he just got completely baited into it so he's i mean he's really just kind of last year was a typical really talented freshman quarterback who wasn't ready to play um in the slightest, but obviously he was forced into that situation. He showed some of his potential while also showing uh, while he wasn't particularly ready to be on the field. So he's a guy who I'm kind of skeptical on this year, making a big, you know, leap and a lot of that, like I was saying earlier, due to the off season, off season circumstances, but he's a guy I'm certainly not writing off. I think he likes to be at Tennessee. I don't think he's going to be quick to transfer unless Harrison Bailey, you know, proves to be a stud this year or something. So he's a guy I definitely think is uh, worth watching going forward. I also, I mean, we'll get to Bailey next, but um, this is a good spot for him. Like, this is a really good place for Maurer. And, I mean, look at Georgia. Georgia's going to be a bloodbath um, with their quarterback situation. And um, yeah. great recruiting, obviously, but this is one of the pitfalls where you have Brock Vandergriff sitting there in the wings. You have JT Daniels coming over. You have... Jamie Newman, you have Carson Beck, you have all these different guys, so they're all going to transfer because eventually one of these guys is just going to win the job. And Newman will be gone for a year, but I still think there is, um, I don't know, I, I think if you're Mauer, you're looking at the Tennessee situation and you're just like, there is a, like you said, 50 50 or 50% shot that Garantano does not play every game, that he doesn't, that he struggles or he gets pulled for different things. Mauer will have his opportunity because. I am not convinced that Harrison Bailey even sees the field or doesn't get red traded. Like he gets the four games or whatever it is. Yeah. Pulled. I don't think uh-huh. they're going to, they, I don't think they have any plans of throwing him in there this year. I, I don't think they want that at all, especially with no spring and no summer. Yeah, I would agree. Um, the question is just going to be, is there, is their hand going to be forced like it was last yeah. year? And that just goes into, it's just such a, uh, question mark with jg because he's just so inconsistent you know he he shows the potential and even puts it together for a couple games at a time where he plays well i mean he did it again in 2018 there was a couple games stretch in the middle of the season where he played pretty well um but just the consistency is not there and you you just wonder what uh what tennessee may be forced into doing and then you know it's going to be obviously i think harrison bailey heights and how maligned JG is has kind of kept that from me in conversation, but I think it really will be an interesting uh, battle for who's, who's the backup between Maurer and, uh, and Harrison Bailey. Well, let's get into the last quarterback I want to talk to tonight. And that's Harrison Bailey, who um, his high school coach watching stuff from him. Um, Cause I'm from Georgia and uh, his high school actually beat my high school that I went to growing up in the state semifinals um, this past year. Okay. 
And Tennessee's actually got the four-star running back um, from my high school. Uh, I'm breaking oh, uh, He's really good uh, from Part B. What is Cody Brown? Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. that's actually kind of cool. That got the checkerboards, the big orange checkerboards down there. <laughs> they do. They do. I grip around it, so it makes sense that I ended up at Tennessee. Um, Harrison Bailey, though, has been compared to Peyton Manning already, and I I get really nervous when I see stuff like that immediately where you're just like, why, why are you doing this to this kid? Like, he hasn't played a snap yet. Like, I get that he's going there, but, like, his coach compared him to Manning because he watches film all the time. And I was like, okay. I mean, I think a lot of quarterbacks watch film all the time. I don't think that necessarily <laughs> makes him Peyton Manning by just being really invested in the quarterback position. Let's let's pump the brakes a little bit. Um, what have you seen so far from Harrison Bailey? Like, what, what do you think his upside is, and do you think he really does have the opportunity to be, like, the best Tennessee quarterback since, honestly, since Peyton? Or Rick Clawson, excuse me, Brent Schaefer, Rick Clawson. Those those two start to be in that conversation as well. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, it's it's such a question mark. I think it, the talent is there. You would just always wonder with a guy like that who plays at such a, has such talented players around him at the school that he's at. And he obviously won the state championship last year and had a very good team. You wonder how much that is because of the players around him. You know, I watched him play, I think, maybe two two games last year and he made a lot of easy throws in that. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a real question mark. I, I think he's, he's a good player. I think he's a guy that, you, you know, I, it's hard to say. I, I never watched him throw a football in person. I think he's a guy who is, has a good chance to be a good high level SEC starter in a few years. I, I don't necessarily think he's a guy that, like you were saying earlier, is going to come in and set the world on fire as a freshman or, even be the full-time starter or anything like that so it's uh you know i'm kind of in wait and see mode on him i'm uh, also pretty uh pretty big fan of i'm not sure fans are the right word i'm pretty high on what what josh dobbs did i think he's uh he's kind of overrated quarterback but when you or excuse me underrated quarterback when you look back and i think butch jones won two sec games without josh dobbs starting now obviously a lot of that's due to him starting the majority of his tenure in Knoxville, but just how much he uh, he got the things rolling for Tennessee. And he was also kind of a guy who wasn't maligned, but I think people didn't appreciate him as, as much as they should at, at the time. So it's, obviously they have very different games, but I think if Harrison Bailey could even be as productive as Josh Dobbs was uh, in college, that it would be a good step in the right direction for Tennessee's program because I feel pretty confident Pruitt's going to have things good on the defensive side of the ball they're going to be pretty sound and not beating themselves much and so much of the the game today is just about having that quarterback position so if you can get a a good option there and he doesn't necessarily have to be a Heisman candidate or anything like that but a a strong player I think that's the biggest uh, thing Tennessee needs to make another jump in the SEC East so what you're saying is they need to bring Butch Jones back as an analyst He's, the house is up for sale. He's he's finally given up on his his return to Knoxville as an analyst. You know, it's funny. I, I mom guess. sent me that. I guess my mom sent me that that his house is finally up for sale. Um, he's got. You know, what's gonna be annoying is he's just gonna be really good at like Northern Illinois for like ten years. That's where Butch Jones should be. Yeah, he's gonna get a he's gonna get another Mac job. Yeah. somewhere in that level. You know, he almost got the Colorado State job. Obviously, that's Mountain West, but he almost got that job. I mean, that's a job I could see him being. You know, pretty successful at. Right. Um, it's just he's not. He doesn't. Yeah, obviously we're not SEC. talking about Butch Jones. 
Yeah. yeah, he's just, I mean, look, the, the pressure of the job, and I've always said Tennessee is about the worst pressure job in the country, just from the fact that it's Knoxville's a pretty good-sized city with big media following, and there's no other sport around. It's all focused solely 100% on Tennessee. Yeah. But obviously handling the pressure. And, uh, and they also low-key picked the new coach. I mean, they, that, yep. that literally yep. happened. Um, we, we don't talk about that enough of just being like, yeah, no, you're not doing that. And then the AD left. And then Philip Fulmer came back. Like, that was just, I hope we get a 30 for 30 from that because that whole thing, uh, what an, just insane. What an absurd, what an absurd month it was. I mean, really, just from, I guess they, Tennessee, Tennessee they fans fired. were just like, no, we're not doing this. And they're like, oh, I guess they don't want us to do this. And then, I mean, just unbelievable stuff. It's, I mean, it's incredible. I'm, yeah, I, I really can't. I mean, obviously, I understand why they did it, but it's almost crazy that uh, John Curry didn't just stick with his guns and say, "We're doing, I'm doing it no matter what," because obviously, it kind of uh, ended up losing him his job too. But so he, he worked. It worked out because he ended up at Wake, and I think he went to Wake. I want to say, um, he, and that's a much yeah, better job. I think he went to, yeah, I think he went to Wake undergrad in uh, UT graduate school. And he made a great hire for basketball. I think that's his first hire. He's yeah. at least big sport hire. And uh, I think Forbes, yeah, I think uh, I think uh, that was a really good hire. And obviously that's a hard place to win in the ACC and that state. But uh, It's also it's, just a uh, job. There's no expectations. He's going somewhere where he doesn't yeah, have to worry about true. the fans. <laughs> like, nobody cares. Like, Wake Forest going 9-3 no. every year, people are happy. If you just get a Riley Skinner in there every now and then, fans don't care. They're good. They're, whatever is it's, better than average is fine with us. Like I, it's this. Yeah, it's the smallest Power Five uh, school by enrollment. So is it really? I mean, you literally look at it is. Yeah, it's. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it's by a decent, decent little margin too. Huh. So yeah, the uh, the pressure is a complete 180 uh, in Winston Salem compared to uh, Knoxville for sure. Yeah, um, I think he's he's sleeping a lot better than he was um, then. Um, is there, if you had to guess, and this is how we'll wrap up here, does Harrison Bailey start a game for Tennessee this fall? I'll say no. Um, but again, I wouldn't put it under hardly 35, 40%. I think it's very possible that he starts a game. Um, so do I. But if, you know, gun to the head, had to choose, I would say, I would say he doesn't. But I, th- I, think, it's, I think it's possible because I just, I think I mean I really think the question is it's between the backup position is who going to be who's going to be able to figure out the offense better and put them in better positions better checks at the long scrimmage and it's hard to say obviously I I don't know much about Harrison Bailey's football mind besides that apparently he's like Peyton Manning watching film but um, you gotta watch I've video. seen Brian Mauer not be <laughs> I, I need to I need to look that up after after this but I've seen Brian Mauer in those situations and he hasn't been great to this point, which again, doesn't mean he can't get better at it and be a good starter in a couple of years. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't particularly strike me as a, as that, you know, living in the, in the film room. I don't think he's going to pull Peyton Manning and lock, uh, lock Harrison Bailey out of the film room any, (laughs) uh, anytime soon, but (laughs) we'll see. I, I could see a scenario where like, Bailey's just in there in the dark, just watching film, and uh, Brian Mauer just like stumbles walking by, and it's just like, "What is this?" And Bailey's like, "The, the film room," and Mauer's like, 
we've had a film room. Like, he could have a whole thing where he's just like, he discovers a whole new wing of the Tennessee football complex. Uh huh. Finds the, yeah, the whole, whole the film room. Got down a new uh, hallway looking for a bathroom or something. And he just like does Stumbled the Tom Demmer thing, like the We Landed on the Moon, but we have a film room. Um, <laughs> and then just Philip Fulmer can't handle it. And it's just like, we've, we've, always, we've always had a film room. Um, that would be great. I, this is material that we need. Um, I, I'm, I'm ready for it. So I'm putting you on the case. So you need to go follow Brian Maurer around uh, this fall when he's on campus. But yeah. social distance, of course, while you're falling around. Yeah, of course. Six, six feet behind while I'm stalking him. Yeah, exactly. All right, man. Well, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking the time tonight, uh, Ryan. Is there anything we should check out from you this week before we go? I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to have uh, anything out this week. Um, I think starting next week, we're going to have uh, some game previews out coming out every uh, day, talking to some uh, other sports writers and getting some information on uh, the Vols' uh, 12 opponents, hopefully 12 opponents this year, hopefully 12 opponents in the fall. So uh, we'll have that coming out, I think, starting next week, but um, nothing for this week. All right. There we go. Ryan, keep up the great work, sir, and uh, maybe I'll see you around this fall. Yeah, for sure. Hi, this is Chuck Dowdle of Bulldogs Roundtable, and I want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Be sure to check out Chase's website at chasethomaspodcast.com and follow the Stone Mountain Native on Twitter and Facebook and listen to my show, Bulldog Roundtable, every Tuesday and Thursday from 9 to 9.30 on 680 The Fan. Have a great Bulldog Day, everybody. All right, we're back on the Jonathan Taylor Thomas Talks Major League Baseball San Diego Padres edition. John, good evening, sir. How are you? I am doing pretty good. How about yourself? How how annoyed were you at uh, me continuing this bit? You know, I've just kind of accepted at this point. I've just I'm just going to lean into it mm. and just let it happen. Thank you. I appreciate your professionalism in this trying time. That's the thing you gotta you gotta be a professional if you're gonna if you're gonna do this. Absolutely, you know? I would expect nothing less of my podcast, John. And we've done so many of these now that uh, our back and forth is uh, why people pay us the big bucks. Exactly. That's why. Yeah. Wait. Wait. Who? Wait. No, I'm not getting any guys. I'm not getting any big bucks. What the hell. Fuck. All right. We'll start over. You didn't hear anything. Um, All right. I I've been sending your checks to Fisher. Is he not? Uh, is he not passing them along? Is he just spending aimlessly on Etsy? Yeah, he's he yeah he's just investing it all himself in in the dark web mm. by drug. I can see Fisher being a dark web dog. He strikes me with yeah, that. But as he post, he he strikes me as someone that either would use the dark web or would sign the Harper's letter. It can be both. <laughs> This has been an insane week, and honestly, every week is insane. Just all the stuff that we'll just forget, like twelve hours later, because like nineteen other things have happened since that thing. But like, I I'm overwhelmed. Just the amount of stuff that I that is just happening all the time. I I need news to stop. Can we stop the news, John? Uh, I would love to, but the news continues regardless. We are people. Keep we are logging but- online. Why are people still logging? the fuck on stop it no more logging on i don't know 
I've gotten to the point mentally where it's like probably just need not to be online because being online is bad. Yeah. But I wish I would have had an answer for you. I don't think there's really a good one here though. No, no. Well, we're going to talk some San Diego Padres tonight because there's some upside there. There's some happiness. There is, if you're like me, a San Diego Padres optimist, then you're just like, you know, I could see something here. There is some, they, they got rid of the boring ass uniforms. They're going back to yep. the the perfect uniforms, which is nice. Stepping they're going in the right direction. They're bringing back the brown. Bringing yeah. back the brown. I'm not sure if I would enjoy that in mid July in Arizona. Not sure that those are the best uniforms for the summer months. Gonna go ahead and guess it's gonna get a little hot in that brown, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. Just a little bit. Yeah. Um, I want to start with the Padres though with you on um, this question. It's something we have to think about with the White Sox. It's something we have to think about with the Phillies. Um, I guess the Rangers to an extent. I'm trying to think who else really fits this category. But like the, we really need to look at their development. We have to look at like, okay, you've had X amount of time since you did your last major teardown. Since you did your uh, equivalent of the Chris Sale trade. The Padres yeah. um, signed Hosmer. They've quietly just acquired a lot of veterans they have just drafted and developed really well they have one of the best farm systems in baseball they theoretically should be coming very soon these guys need to rise and they have the right mixture of veteran talent and young guys they have their they have their grit in will myers they have their grit in eric hosmer it's time that they start putting it all together they have a great bullpen um in your estimation where are the padres and their in their development uh is it like because everything we want to say is linear but are they where are they in their development i think they're at that stage where they're not quite you know what it feels like to me it feels like the royals in like i guess i was going to say the royals in 2013 but the royals in 2013 weren't actually they were okay they they won 86 games they were fine and you look back at that roster and you see 23 year old sally perez 23 year old Eric Osber, 24-year-old Mike Moustakas, uh, 27-year-old Lorenzo Cain, although Cain was uh, an older an older draft pick so, and took a while to get to the major. So I think that I, that might have actually been his rookie season at the age of 27. Oh, no, he wasn't. That's what am I saying? He came up with the Brewers in 2010. Ignore that. But regardless, you had all these guys who were under 30. A lot of them, Perez, Moustakas, Hosmer, um, you know, uh, relievers like Calvin Herrera, they had just come out of the minors. You know, they were just developing. And that Royals team was fine. Like, again, they won 86 games. They finished third in the Central. Like, and you could see to a certain extent, like, there was a future there. Like, I don't necessarily know that anyone would have looked at the 2013 Royals and gone back-to-back pennants coming up. Um, But you could certainly see the kind of the pieces that were there, the pieces that were necessary for them to, to be a good, like that farm system developing the pieces necessary for them actually to become a good team, you know, cause you look at all those guys, Perez, Hosmer, Moustakis, Alex Gordon, obviously been there forever, you know, all homegrown. Lorenzo Kane for the most part homegrown. I mean, he was in Milwaukee for all of, he played all the season with Milwaukee before he got traded. Um, Alcides Escobar, obviously, and I think similar to the Padres, like that twenty, you know, that twenty thirteen team had in place pieces like James Shields, which 
was part of the original Will Myers trade. Every, everything just keeps coming back to to the Kansas City Royals. So that was their first season with James Shields. He was a great starter for them. He threw 230 innings. It's just a rock for that rotation, kind of helped set it over the bets. You know, they, you look at that rotation, had some veteran guys, also had some younger ones. So that was kind of thing. That was the first real kind of move for them, I think, where it's like, okay, we're trying to build something more than just young guys take us forward. It's like, we need we need these veterans. And like, I remember, you know, the at the time thinking, you know, that Will Myers trade was terrible. You know, why would they give up one of the best prospects in baseball for a 31-year-old starter when they were nowhere near contention? As it turns out, Shields was obviously instrumental in them winning back-to-back pennants, you know? So I think that, you know, if you, I don't know if it's an exact, um, or not, not back-to-back pennants. He was only there for the 2014 season, but I don't know if it's an exact one-to-one comparison. I'm not going to come out here and say that the 2020 Padres are, are the 2013 Royals and you should be prepared for the Padres to win the World Series in two years. But I think that that's pretty much where San Diego is at with all this young talent, where I think realistically you're probably looking at what would have been the equivalent of, I think, maybe an 80-win team, 85 if a lot of stuff comes together, right? Because, I mean, obviously they're in, a, they're in a tough division with the Dodgers. They're in a tough spot in the National League, which has a lot of kind of similar-ish wildcard contender types. But I think it's the thing. It's like, I think this Padres team in a regular season would have been a wildcard contender. I think in the 60-game season, they'll still be a wildcard contender. I was actually just uh, looking at their current playoff odds, and Fangraphs has them at 35% to make the playoffs, 21% to be one of the two wildcards. Actually, they have the highest wildcard odds of any team in the National League. They just hmm. edge out the Braves at 20.8. Padres are 20.9. The, Bra- the Braves are 20.8. Is that so just because the Braves are favored Braves. in the NL East? The- yeah, the Braves and the Braves are favored to win the division, and that's okay. the thing. Like the, the the problem for the Padres is even with a sixty game schedule, which obviously you know creates a better chance for chaos, and you know means that the the depth of a team like a Dodgers, they're not gonna they're not gonna run away with the season more likely than not. You know, they the Padres still only have a, by Fangraphs estimation a fourteen percent chance to win the division. It's pretty much wild card or bust for them, but I think they are capable of doing. That. I mean, uh, Fangraphs has them as a thirty one and twenty nine team, so just above five hundred. But in a really crowded National League with a lot of teams that are going to be in that same area, that's good enough for a wild card spot. And that's and that's just the baseline projection right now. I mean, there are lots of things that could go right for the Padres to make this work. Part of which is, and this is, this is I think, where that kind of 2013 Royals thing kind of comes into play is you have all these prospects down in your farm system who are capable of making a like a, a quick or at least a, a sharp impact, like how many other teams have the depth of a team like San Diego where pitching wise, if something goes wrong and I'm not saying they're going to do this because you know, there's no, there's, there's not necessarily any reason they're going to push them because some of these guys have just barely, you know, are barely into their minor league careers. But part of their player pool right now includes Adrian Morajon, Mackenzie Gore and Luis Patino. Those are three of the best pitching prospects in baseball. You know, that is right there for them. You know, those are guys who are available right now where if something goes wrong pitching-wise, they can bring those guys up, and those guys are good enough to make an impact, maybe even as relievers if they need to. And you look at the team they have, there's just there's a lot here. Like There, there, there are some issues. Myers is just simply not a, a really – he's basically an average major leader at this point. And depending, obviously, on Tommy Pham's health, you know, maybe he's their regular DH, or maybe that's, you know, big Franchi Cordero. But, you know, that, that outfield's not – super great 
Um, Francisco Mejia, there are obvious question marks about both his bat and his ability to stay behind the plate, and they don't really... I mean, they have Austin Hedges, who's definitely great, really hit. Um, the bench is pretty thin offensively. They're, they're not a team that can suffer a big injury. If someone like a Tatis or a Machado or you know one of those two guys or, or a fam goes down, they're in a lot of trouble because they don't have the offensive. That's something they really still kind of lack is the bats to kind of back those guys up. And granted, like you take the one of the three best players off, or sorry, one of the three best hitters off any team, especially in a sixty-game season, you're gonna have problems. But the Padres don't have a lot of offensive depth. Their outfield's not great. Uh, second base is your guess is as good as mine. If that's Jerkson Profar, if that's Jorge Mateo, if that's someone else, and they have a lot of injury-prone arms in that rotation. Garrett Richards obviously has not had a fully healthy season, in, I think ever. Um, Danielson Lamette coming off Tommy John surgery, Chris Paddock, you know, healthy last year, but not a guy you, I mean, granted, this is, this is the nice thing about a 60 game season. They don't have to worry about innings limits or, or, or anything like that. But again, there are some durability issues there, but overall, I mean, there's just so much upside here. And I think that's where that 2013 Royals thing happens is you just see all the potential upside. You look at these guys and you're like, give them a year or two. You know, let them keep improving. And this team is going to be really hard to beat, especially if, like the Royals did, they both make the right moves in free agency and make the right trades. And I think, you know, you look back at what the Padres did this offseason, which admittedly was about a billion years ago. They made a lot. Like, I really like the moves they made. You know, uh, I, I love the Tommy Pham trade. I think getting Zach Davies was, was smart. Davies is not a guy who really I think anyone is ever impressed by because, you know, he throws. He doesn't throw particularly hard. He doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. But at the same time, you know, he's a guy who can who can provide you innings. Like aside from 2018 when he got when he got hurt, he's given you 160 or more innings every year. There are three out of the last four years. And for again, for a rotation that has some durability issues, that's great. I thought that was a great addition for them. You know, they didn't really make the big free agent move, although you could argue, you know, with Machado the year before and Hosmer the year before that, maybe there's not really the appetite for that kind of move anymore. And I I don't necessarily know either who that big free agency move would have been. And honestly, the, the thing I'm super interested to see is depending on how things work out with uh, the outfielders they have, you know, currently there between Cordero and Trent Grisham. And I'm not, I'm not actually sure what fans, I'm just going to look it up because I'm curious what fans contract situation is beyond 2020. Uh, okay. He's not going to be an out free agent for a while. So they have a pretty, they have a lot of outfield options. But that's also a team too. Where it's like maybe they get involved in the Mookie Betts Derby. You know, maybe maybe they decide that 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 is a, a purchase so worth making. To that though, oh my god. Yeah, yeah, and that's but that's the thing. Like this is a team where you could see them theoretically doing that because of the fact that they have. Like you look at the the contract space or the the future contract space. I guess I should say, um, on that roster. They're not paying anyone but Hosmer and Machado, basically, past 2022. Will Myers is still on the books for a bit, and that's not ideal. Um, but eventually, you have to imagine at some point they will find somewhere they can just dump his contract and move on. But beyond 2022, the only money on the books is Machado, Hosmer, and Drew Pomeranz. Plus some guys will be in arbitration or, you know, or, or something close to it. Like, yeah, of course, you've got to leave the space there. there there's going to be a huge contract for Fernando Tatis Jr. to try to buy out some of those arbitration and free agent years, ideally. 
Um, there's going to be money going to guys like maybe, maybe fam is a guy, you know, depending on how he plays this year and next that they want to invest in long-term, although given how he's already 32, I'm, I'm not sure that's the case, but you know, I guess really beyond Tatis and beyond, you know, if they, for some reason want to give guys like Paddock or eventually Gore or Morihan or Patino a big contract really early in their careers, which I, I don't really see that. I mean, you don't. I don't think most teams really want to give that kind of big money to pitchers anyway. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of space. There's a lot of contract space for them to make a move for someone like a Mookie Betts. Are they going to? Probably not. I think, I well, think I the think most likely reason is Preller still GM. Preller's done this. Like Preller has no qualms about just <laughs> changing gears and being like, screw it. We're going for it. Yeah. And that's a screw and that, it we're going for. And, it that's, and that's kind of the thing that that's, he is the, he is a permanent wild card so long as yep. he is in charge of the team. Because I mean, let's be honest, when they signed Machado, no one really saw that one coming. No, you know, we it were almost like we were trying to like, just oh, yeah. push him away from San Diego. Where we're like, no, I mean, because that it was like floated out there forever that they were yeah they and were then, interested. And, and similarly, like, no. And, and similarly with Eric Hosmer, I mean, I don't think many people saw that one coming. And if there is one upside to Hosmer at this point, I know he hasn't performed nearly close to what the Padres probably hoped. A lot of that contract was front loaded. Mm. He's only due thirty nine million over the last three years of it, from twenty twenty three through twenty twenty five. Not, it's still not great, but once you get past twenty twenty two, he's not taking up a huge amount of the contract either. It's really just Machado. And again, whatever it is, they end up deciding to give Tatis, who I imagine is probably. I mean, Tatis is still two seasons away from our, from reaching arbitration. Although I'm I'm not sure, I'm not sure how Super Two is going to work. Um, with the 60 game season, that's uh, I, I haven't looked enough into into that to see if he would qualify for that. But regardless, you're not talking about giving him a big deal until probably maybe this time next year or maybe the off season after. And I'm sure at this point, too, you, if you're the Pirates, you probably want to wait to see what the next CBA looks like before you start handing out big extensions. Regardless, though, like there's a lot of upside. There's a lot of room to make additions. There's a lot of room to do stuff, which is you know the AJ Preller ways. There's just there's just room to change things if you feel like it. So, you know, I, I look at the Padres, and that's what I see. I just see this kind of, I don't want to say limitless, but the, it, it's just it's a big open horizon. And there's a lot of room for them to do stuff, you know, in part because they have that farm system that is, that is theoretically at least going to produce so much cheap high-end talent. But also just because, you know, they have really not made, done much in the way of free agency aside from Machado and Hosmer in the last, you know, five or so years. Again, Will Myers is really their only big expenditure beyond that, and that didn't work, but that's also, you know, I mean, not every, obviously not every contract works anyway. You can't really, you can't really say, Oh, that didn't work. Therefore it's never going to work. So I, this, I mean, obviously we've been saying this for a while. The future is bright for the Padres. And I think this is, you know, even with the, the weirdness of whatever the 60 game season is going to create, you know, I definitely do think that this is a year where you kind of, you probably will see them take that step toward being uh, regular contenders, or at least you hope, you know, because, Honestly, if they're not, something's gone wrong. Um, this is a team that should be making that step. But even if they're not, they have so much prospect capital, like you said, so many, so much just cap relief coming up anyway, that like they can pivot very quickly. If this stuff does not work out and they stumble out of the gate or they stumble early into next season, like they can maneuver they can do things that can get them out of that hole. They can strike some deals. They they can do stuff. Um, but it is funny when you think about like every deal that they do, 
when we're just talking about this stuff out loud is that like no one saw Hosmer coming. No one saw Machado coming. No one saw Will Myers coming. Like it's just over and over again. Like we just do this and we're like, that's what the Padres I mean, have no one, done a lot in the last couple of years. It, they've proven no that one, they no, do no it. One saw, no one saw A.J. Preller's initial spasm of action, the yeah, whole Matt Kemp, Greg Kimbrell, Justin Upton yeah. uh, wild winter. And granted, that didn't work. But that's the thing. The Padres just tend to zig, apparently, where everybody else zags. They just they do their own thing. And, you know, that's that has put them in a place where, like you said, there's there's a lot of room for them to do stuff because, well... There's there's just a lot of room for them to do stuff and um, what is the best case scenario for them this fall and what is the worst case like because when we talked about the Diamondbacks a few weeks ago it's different like the Diamondbacks I think their worst case scenario is a lot higher than the pods but I think the best case scenario I think the worst case case scenario for the Padres is pretty much what happened last year when they were just I mean they they lost ninety games games yeah they were not a good team last year. there really wasn't a whole lot for them that went right. I mean, granted, they part of that was they completely fell apart in the second half. They went 25 and 47 after the All-Star break. Some of that was a 7 and 20 September where they were, you know, clearly just out of it. You know, they were already, by September 1st, they were already 23 and a half games back in the NL West, which granted, so was everybody else, and probably, you know, close to a dozen games back in the wild card. You know, and even even when, at the, when they were at their best you know and when the season re- you know we could say like past memorial day they were never within you know more than eight or ten games of, of of the division and by that extension they were probably never within more than four or five of the wild card uh, off the top of my head honestly don't remember feels like 2019 was eight years ago regardless like they were but they were just a bad team you know they were just straight up not a good team they gave up they had a bad offense they gave up too many runs um aside from Kirby Yates, really was not particularly good. I think it's going to be better this year. But I do think that's probably uh, and of course Machado did not have a particularly strong first uh, first season, although I think you know there's always that sense of like, oh, so it just takes time sometimes for these guys to get acclimated when they sign those big deals. Um, and of course, they also just they didn't really have much in the way of, of pitching depth. You know, Paddock obviously had a great season. Um, but then you're you're cycling through a lot of Cal Quantrill and Nick Marjavicious and you know the okay Eric Lauer and um, and then even you know guys beyond that who are even worse like you know Logan Allen okay like uh, they had you know a few starts out of Garrett Richards there just wasn't a whole lot of depth uh, to kind of back up when things went wrong there wasn't like offensively they aside from Tatis and Fernando Reyes they were a disaster um, I think that's I think that's but I think I think that's probably the worst case scenario is just that season again. Like the young guys the young guys who are who are being asked to do stuff struggle. The older guys, you know, kind of continue to tread water. You know, aside from a guy like Tatis and, and maybe, you know, another bat, you're not really getting much. You know, you same thing in the rotation where you have a you know, Paddock does well and maybe Garrett Richards is back in form, but the rest of the guys don't really deliver. And I'd say that's probably every team's worst case scenario, but I think that's you know, for the Padres, that's probably what it looks like. Is a, I guess the equivalent would be, I don't know, like a 25 and 35 season or something like that. Obviously, but I think the best case is they actually like challenge the Dodgers for a reasonable amount of time in the West, and they end up as one of the two wild cards. I think that's their, I do think that's their best case scenario. I mean, I, I don't want to say that their best case scenario involves the NL West because, again, it's like a one in six chance that they win the NL West, and I think that's probably a little too high. But 
you know, I think that's the best case is that all the young guys kind of come together. Uh, Machado finds, you know, Machado re- remembers his Manny Machado. Tatis probably won't have as good a season as he did, but he, you know, continues to prove that he is a superstar talent. Um, get more consistent production um, out of spots like second base, out of the outfield, out of, you know, Hosmer, something closer to league average at least. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's going to require a guy like maybe a Mejia taking a step forward. It's, it's going to require some of those kind of non-superstars. Like, I know Mejia was a top prospect back in the day, but it, I mean, it's guys like Mejia or it's guys like Franchi Cordero or it's guys like Denilson Lamette. You know, and I, obviously, and I, he, he's one of, it feels like, he feels like Lamette feels like one of those X factors in particular for this team. They're going to get a full season out of him, hopefully. You know, he showed electric stuff when he was back last year. I know it was only a few starts, you know, but he looked, fantastic when he did pitch uh you know i'm just taking a look at his numbers quickly right now and he had uh 105 strikeouts in 73 innings out of all in 14 games that's incredible the guy's a strikeout machine you know you get a full season of that and granted a full season that is going to end up being like 65 innings but you know you have him making regular turns instead of having to plug in guys like marja vicious or logan allen or Cal Quantra, who just kind of weren't ready. But, you know, those guys are fine as depth. You just don't want to be relying on them. And so I think, you know, if those kind of secondary important pieces, um, Lamette and Cordero and Mejia, can take a step forward, then I think you, you're much, much more likely for the Padres to reach that best-case scenario of, you know, guaranteed wildcard team. Fisher agrees. Um, Fisher agrees. He's very, he's very, he's all on board the Padres bandwagon. Um. Who are your most intriguing prospects for the Padres? Who do you like the prospects most? Prospects or guys prospects or guys already on the team? Prospects. Prospects. Okay. I think obviously Gore. You know, you, you see the numbers he put together last year. I mean, I'm just I'm gonna read them out because they're they're just absolutely wild. You know, they're they're they don't make any they don't make any sense how how good this kid is. Um mm. here we go, Mackenzie Gore. Last season uh, split between two levels, double A and advanced A. Uh, 20 starts, 101 innings, 135 strikeouts, 19 earned runs. <laughs> he had an ERA of 1.7 between two innings. And that, that, that's including a, actually kind of a rough, quick trip of double A, a four ERA and five starts. But, you know, A ball, he, was, he just destroyed it. And even at double A, he was four years younger than the average player there. Double A is probably the hardest level the majors to adjust to in terms of jumps. You know, and he's only 21 years old. That That is crazy. You know, he he is very much a guy like I have my, my eye on where it's like, I think if you're the Padres, and I know that there are probably guys ahead of Gore in the depth chart, if, you know, if someone like a Richards or, or Davies or, or Lamette gets hurt, but they probably would turn to someone like Cal Quantrill, or, or to someone like Javi Guerra, or to someone like, um, you know, who else is in their pool? Someone like a, a Jared Eikhoff, if he's healthy, in, ahead of Gore, because, you know, you don't want to push the kid too far too fast. But, man, the upside there is just so, so great. And I, I really, if there's any good that can come out of this misbegotten 60-game season that shouldn't be happening for 18 different reasons, it's that maybe we do get these quick glimpses of these guys who ordinarily, like I, I think if this had been a normal season, how young Gore is and given he just got the double A last year, I think the likeliest we would have seen him in the majors if he made it would have been sometime around the all-star break, I guess, if, if, if even that early. 
now there's a chance we could see him pretty quick on. You know, maybe maybe he impresses so much in this quick little summer camp that every team is doing. But the Padres figure we got to find a role for him, or at least he's just there. He is there and waiting for them. So that that he I think is really the one I'm excited to see. Uh, the other one would probably be Taylor Trammell, if only because. He obviously was a big prospect back with the Reds. I don't believe he's in the player pool currently. Oh, no, he is. Never mind, he is. So he's someone who is available for them. Um, just those, like, tremendous five-tool guys, you know, really, uh, really highly thought of when they when he got drafted out of uh, – where did he get drafted out of? He got drafted out of – out of a Georgia high school. That's, that's the other thing. Like, all, every Georgia high school prospect is always just the most like, – Be careful here. Tools. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, hey, listen. Be very careful. Every Georgia high, every Georgia high school player is just tools for days, man. Mm. Like all of those kids. That that place, Georgia Georgia high schools are a tools factory when it comes to baseball players. So podcasters, you know, and podcasters, of course. And I can understand obviously he didn't really produce the way the Reds wanted him to. He never has really kind of been more than slightly, you know. He, but the thing is, he's still just 22 years old. You know, this is another guy. He's just a kid. You know, he won't turn 23 until September. You know, he's still young for what he's doing. And especially coming out of high school, there's obviously a ton of upside there. A lot of speed, good defense, you know, loud contact. Like, everything is there for him to be an impact player. And especially, you can see that, like, in this outfield. Again, like, this is not a super great outfield. Assuming Sam is the regular DH. Because I, I, I don't really actually see who else it would be unless they want to give that role to Josh Naylor, which, why, why would you do that? Um, or if you want to park, park Will Myers. Either way, one of Famer Myers is probably your regular DH, or they kind of alternate between the two of them. The rest of your outfield is, is Franchi Cordero, who's fine. You know, Franchi's got a lot of upside, and his name is Franchi. I can't, <laughs> I can't hate on a guy like Franchi. Mm-hmm. And then they have Trent Grisham, who they got from the Brewers. He's also a, a perfectly fine guy, good eye, like a good OBP guy. But Trammell has upside for days, similar to Gore. It's just there is, an, there is an, I think, an opportunity for him. If that outfield continues to struggle, if it's really just Bam who's the only one hitting and everyone else is just kind of muddling through, maybe Trammell gets a shot. You know, maybe they figure, why not? Let's. He, there's obviously no minor league season. We lose nothing throwing him out there. Let's see what he's got. And I think – he definitely has the tools to make it work. It's just a matter of can he hit consistently enough and can he, you know, the, the, I think that the thing for him is like, obviously strikeouts are a big thing too. He struck out 122 times at 514 plate appearances across two levels in the minors last year. at a 24% rate. That's not awful, but that's not great. Um, and then the corresponding walk rate, he walked, you know, he actually, he actually has a pretty good eye. He had a walk rate of, of 13% last year across two levels. That's pretty good. It just is a lot of strikeouts, not a, you know, didn't, wasn't making a lot of contact last year. I didn't obviously, I did, obviously didn't watch him play. I can't say what that was all about. You have to talk to someone who, you know, covers the Padres or knows their farm system a little better. One of the kind of prospect guys, but you know, the tools are there. And I, and I think that's the big thing with a guy like Taylor Trammell. The tools are there. And I think the opportunity is theoretically there because that outfield is not, this isn't, this isn't last year's Red Sox outfield of Ben and or the 2018 Red Sox outfield of Beth Benintendi and Jackie Bradley Jr. Where it's like you're just not going to find playing time. You know, this isn't this isn't like this isn't an all-star outfield he's trying to crack. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty mediocre outfield, and I think there is an opportunity there if that outfield doesn't produce. 
So who do you think actually has a bigger offensive impact this year, Grisham or Fam? Because I think that's interesting to to think about. I think it's it's definitely it's definitely Fam. Like mm-hmm. given okay. given what he has done, given what he can do. Um, I love Tommy Pham. He's a fantastic hitter. Um, he's a great base stealer. One of the one of the better ones in baseball. He's good. I walked 81 times last year in 654 plate appearances. That's a rate of 12. percent That's good. That's a good rate. Like he's Why do the a, Cardinals a, hate him. He's just because he just couldn't stop running his mouth there. I like guess. he. That's this is the thing about Pham, and this is why, to a certain degree, he is on his third team in seven years. He rubs people the wrong way. Granted, like. A lot of what he was angry about with the Cardinals was justified in the sense that he felt they had slow played him in the centers, they didn't give him a fair opportunity, and that when they did finally call him up and he, you know, showed how good a player he was, you know, they they didn't they didn't pay him. And that's fair. That's an entirely fair thing to be upset about. But and I and I don't I don't also don't want to say I don't want to imply that the Rays traded him because he was a problem. The Rays will trade anyone anytime, regardless of who they are. That's just the Rays like there, there's nothing necessarily to be fair, but the Cardinals hated him because Fam hated them. It was just it was just a mutually destructive relationship that had to go that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I mean, he, you know, he he played great for Tampa Bay last year. The only question I really have with Fam is can he stay healthy? You know that that's really the big issue for him throughout his career. And in last year he was healthy. It's just can he keep that up? And I think obviously if he's, if he's DHing more often, that's probably good. Because he's also he's not a particularly good defensive outfielder. He's fine. He's nothing special, you know, for a corner outfielder. He's okay. Um, which I guess is kind of the thing that drags him down a little bit value wise. But at the same time, it's like he was a four win player for the Rays last year. That's great. He was a six win player back in 2017. Um, and obviously, the thing you worry about is like I haven't mentioned his age. He turned he turned 32 in March. You know, at some point, he's theoretically at least going to be slowing down. But I think he makes, especially he makes a huge impact too, because I'm assuming that, and here's the thing, I don't know this for sure because I haven't had a chance. I mean, I don't, and I don't think there's necessarily too much you can take in terms of lineup construction out of, out of these SIM games. Um, But this, this Padres team spent a lot of time batting like uh, Manny Margot and Ian Kinsler and, um, Greg Garcia lead off and then Nick Martini and Josh Naylor and Will Myers second and, and Eric Cosmer a lot too. And I think obviously like some of that was when Tatis got hurt last year, they didn't really have a good leadoff option because he was hitting leadoff. And then I assume he's going to hit leadoff again going forward. The fam really fits nicely into that number two spot and a top of the line of Tatis fam Machado. And, you know, I, I don't know necessarily who's cleaning up there. It could be, you know, maybe, maybe it's, Maybe they try out Franchi Cordero there. Or maybe they, maybe they move Hosmer up and see what he's got at a certain point. Or maybe you know it, it depends. They they have options. None of them are great, but they have options. But at least a top three of Tatis, Fam, Machado, that's pretty good. And I think he does a lot for them at the top of that lineup. Because again, aside from you know when Tatis was healthy, they didn't really get a whole lot out of the top of the lineup uh, between. You know, between the likes of Greg Garcia and Ian Kinsler and Manny Margot, and then Hosmer batted second last year a lot. That didn't really work. Um, Naylor, Myers, Martini. But they, they cycled through a lot of options in those two spots. Um, and I think you know, a healthy Tatis and a healthy fan means that those first two spots in the lineup can be penciled in every day, no real problem. 
And it just creates a lot of flexibility down the lineup too, because you don't have to keep, you know, randomly shuffling guys about or putting guys in a position where they're just not really suited. You know, you don't, you don't want your, your Greg, your Greg Garcia's and your, your Josh Naylor's batting at the top of the lineup. That shouldn't happen. You want those guys down seven, eight, you know, six, seven, eight around there. You want them in a much lower pressure spot where there's not as much, you know, where they can just kind of do their own thing as opposed to having to set the table. Fam is a great table setter. And so I think that's, you know, his impact there is going to be potentially huge. Yeah. Um, Chris Paddock, we mentioned him briefly. We should probably talk about him more. What do you think he's going to be? Love like, Chris what, do you think, what do you think his, his ceiling is? Like, where does he, where does he fall? Can he get in the, the, just the cinder guard, Degrom type level? What is his upside? Where do you see him going in the next two to three years? It, it's tough because we, Obviously, we only got to see, you know, he only threw, jeez, uh, well, how many innings did he have? Between the that little kind of forced vacation they put him on in the summer, you know, he only, he only threw 140 innings. We didn't actually get to see terribly much of it. Everything we saw was deeply impressive. And to me, it's not just the strikeouts. It's not just the, the, the just wicked changeup he has. It's the walk rate. He only walked 5.5% of the guys he faced last year. For a 20, how old is he? 24-year-old pitcher. That's phenomenal. How many pitchers that early on in their careers have that kind of control already? And that's me. I think it's a big thing. Like you, you look at, you know, as you look at the stat cast numbers and like all the expected stats are great. It's weirdly enough, like the, the strikeout, the strikeout rate and especially the swing and miss rate are a little lower than you'd probably want to see for a guy, you know, throws 94 and has the change if he has. But again, when you have that kind of control, when you avoid giving up hard contact, you know, he's good at avoiding hard contact. You know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly where he ends up because some of that is just going to be how he continues to develop as a pitcher. And a big part of that is going to be, he needs to add a reliable third pitch. You know, he, he, uh, you know, he's primarily four seamer changeup. He has a curveball, but he only threw it a couple hundred times out of, you know, he basically only threw it about 10 ish percent of the time, roughly. You know, and it it's an okay pitch. It doesn't it, it gets okay numbers. Um, it's just it's just a matter of like can he develop that pitch and make it into something that is a useful, viable option. Um, and I actually I, I want to recommend there is a a piece on Fangraphs from a while ago now, actually from from back around February by Michael Augustine, who wrote a lot about Chris Paddock's curveball and you know, what, what it kind of like, how it could kind of develop and what it kind of needs to do to develop. And, and I, and I think that's the big thing is if you can find a third pitch, if and refine that curveball and turn it into something that's more than just kind of a random, like show me pitch when he's not going to change it fast. That I think would be really big for him. I think that, that is the thing that is something that needs to happen. And of course, the other thing is just going to be stamina and durability. Of course, the nice thing for him is, you know, because it's only a 60 game season, he's not going to end up throwing more than, 70 to 80 some innings, something like that, which honestly is part of probably a problem going forward because, you know, the first two years of his career is going to top out at 200 some innings total. You know, that's, that's not great for development going forward, but at the very least Padres don't have to worry necessarily about, um, about durability or about, or about, you know, putting too many innings on his arm too quickly. So to me, it's just, okay. If he can, if he can develop that third pitch, 
I think he's in way, I think that that's kind of going to be the thing that, that separates him out of it's going to be, you know, can he become more than just a two pitch pitcher, even though the two pitches are already pretty damn good. Without looking, who's the Padres manager? Jace Tingler. I just, I, I, I can't forget that because I love that. I love that name so much. I, um, I'm going to forget this when the season's going on and there's a strong chance if I ever write about the Padres, I'm just going to say Bud Black because Bud Black's actually been the Padres <laughs> manager for the last 15 years and you cannot uh, tell me otherwise, unfortunately. Like, that's just... He is who I think about when I think of the Padres. <laughs> it's going to be the same with Bochi on the Giants. We're like... Getting used to Gabe Kapler being the Giants manager is going to take some time to just be like... If someone asks you, like, who's managing the Giants these days? And you're like, I think it's still Bruce Bochy. Um... But uh, yeah, just an unbelievable. Who is this guy uh, managing the the San Diego Padres? Um, but they also had like coaching changes across the board because of how bad last season was. And I wonder how much of bringing it all the way back when we think about the Padres and their seventy wins last year and um, where they are in their progression. It's just like I think Fowler, the chairman of the Padres, wants to be good very soon, and I think. Yeah, he 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 gives me a real strong like Steinbrenner vibe. Yeah, and I don't think he's willing. I mean, everything is weird with the with just this COVID shortened season. But like the vibe I get from him, and they it wasn't just the manager. Like they changed a lot of coaches this off season, and I get the vibe that if they stumble out of the gate, I mean, if this is a normal season, my gut would tell me they would do drastic stuff and that he is gonna empower preller to do what preller does best and i wonder yeah, but i i i feel like though with with tangler like and i love just being able to say that tangler <laughs> i can tell i feel like this is i feel like this is san diego's rocco baldelli and it's funny because tangler has kind of a similar ish background you know he's a field coordinator with the rangers he worked in the, he's worked on the field and in the front office you know his coaching staff and um, coaching staff and front office, and he's you know he's managed a little bit um, at lower levels, and he's very much you know he's a, he's a young guy. He's, he's only thirty nine years old. You know he his playing career finished out, you know, I guess only about a decade or so ago. It's it's that same vibe of here's a guy who is young and can theoretically relate to these guys and know what they've been through and knows what they you know what they go through every day and knows what the grind is like. But at the same time, he kind of does, actually. Um, But he's also someone who has, you know, worked in a front office, who understands that side of things, who had theoretically at least given, you know, the fact that he worked um, under Thad Levine and also, you know, with the under Texas front office that is sabermetrically inclined with John Daniels. You know, he understands the advanced concepts. And it's important, too. Like, he managed in the Dominican Winter League. He's managed in Rookie League. He has worked with young guys. He has worked with guys, to, And especially Dominican Winter League, that's a that's a combo of young and old. That's veterans and, like, 22-year-olds, you know? That's And it, it, obviously, too, it's important. He's bilingual. You know, he could manage the Dominican. you got to be able to speak some Spanish, which is helpful for a team that's got a lot of Spanish-speaking players on it. But I think this is their their kind of their attempt to kind of capture the same energy that the Twins got with Rocco Baldelli, the young guy who knows the front office and the field, former player who can relate to these guys. And so I think the leash for him is probably pretty long. I can't imagine anything barring like some massive scandal cost, costing him his job this year. 
And that, and I understand that, you know, that, that Ron Fowler does want this team to win and win. Now, you know, you don't spend you know, combined almost $500 million on Eric Hosmer and Manny Machado, plus, you know, whatever else, you know, they've added to, to settle for yet another, like the equivalent of a 70 win campaign. But I think Tingler is a guy for the long haul, especially because, you know, that I think there really is something to be said about, you know, the, the whole idea of youth, because I, I always got the sense of Andy Green, very much an, like not necessarily that much older than Jace Tingler, but just, he always felt older. You know, Andy Green felt very much like kind of an older school manager. Um, one of those guys who kind of come up, you know, a, a former player too, but who had kind of been in a little more of a kind of normal managerial path, you know? Like he, he did his time as a manager down in the minors. He did his time as a, as a coach on a staff, but like he never really, I don't know. I never got the sense that he seemed, it never seemed like he gelled with the young guys on that team. I I think I remember reading something of that effect um, from the athletics, Dennis Lynn, who's their Padres beat writer. used to be with the San Diego union tribune is a great beat writer that green just never really seemed to see eye to eye with the young guys on that team. And so I think this is their attempt too, just to kind of, here's the guy who's, who seemed, who just feels like, like a younger guy, just feels like someone who's a little more in step with what the times currently are. And so I think, you know, he, I think he is there for the long. I think he, like I said, I think he is their attempt to, to get their own Rocco Baldelli. Cause I think that's pretty much what every team that's hiring a manager wants is their own Rocco Baldelli. It either goes the Rocco Baldelli stuff or the Gabe Kapler situation. It's like you get one or the other. Yeah. And you definitely want more Rocco Baldelli than you do Gabe Kapler, which is great news for giants fans. Yeah. Great. What a, what a, what an off season for them. Yeah. I, I'm excited though. I think the Padres are just, I think they're one of the teams that really, really benefits from a shorter season because they can just, I do balls too, to the right? wall. they can experiment with all these young guys having a 60 team, like just being deep is going to be extremely important for a lot of teams this year. And the Padres are deep as hell. And I, I think they're a team that really, really benefits. So I would hedge more on the Padres in a 60 game season this year. I really would. I agree too. And the funny thing about that is part of why I agree is they have a pitching staff that almost seems designed for 60 games mm. because all of these guys, like I said, their durability issues with like Richardson and Richards and Lamette. There's the idea that Paddock is maybe not still built up endurance wise to take on a full, like 200 inning workload, you know, that, and I think, you know, they have a lot of options in their bullpen. Now that had last year, but they got a lot of really interesting guys beyond Kirby eight. They got Drew Palmer in Emilio Pagan, which is a trade I liked for them. Um, Pierce Johnson coming back from Japan where he was utterly dominant. Like what the one bummer there is that they're going to miss Andres Munoz because he blew out his elbow and that dude threw like a hundred four miles an hour. So that's a shame. But like, I, I agree that like, I think they are built for a 60 game season. They have the prospect depth. They have guys who kind of like a pitching stuff that kind of would seem that there's a value to 60 games when it comes to prospects that you can, like, I think I was saying this with, with Luis Robert last week when we talked about the White Sox is there's just less time for the rest of the league to adjust to those guys. And so if they get off to a hot start, that obviously carries more weight than it would in a regular season because, you know, the league is going to adjust back to them. But in only 60 games, and if you're only talking about having someone like Taylor Trammell up for 20 or 25 games or giving Mackenzie Gore four or five starts down the stretch, 
you know, that there is real value to being able to kind of sneak those guys in, especially to get the major league development time, you know, in a kind of wonky season, you know, maybe, and obviously this is probably the major benefit to the Padres is giving them major league development time without necessarily having to start their clocks, uh, their service time clocks, which again, not a hundred percent on the service time rules and how they're going to work this season, like what the cutoffs would be. But I have to imagine that is something the Padres have considered when they, and everything is considered when they put top prospects on their 60 man pool is this isn't just about giving them development time and structured environment. Since there's some minor leagues, it's like, can we get these guys if we need them onto a major league roster without starting their service time early? And I think you're probably going to see a fair amount of that with the Padres because they have guys like Gore and Trammell and Patino and Morihan and Michelle Baez. A guy I didn't mention is another one of their great top prospects, you know, giving them that time where they could not only make it, not only get major league development, but also make a major league impact at essentially no cost. Yeah. I'm excited. The pods are gonna be fun. I think we. I think I've talked you into the pods. It sounds like. I think you're. you're oh, I, I, I'm, I'm all on board the Padres train. I, I think they're gonna be a real wild card contender, and so I'm very excited for when they inevitably do their Padres thing and only win like 22 games this year. It's gonna be great. Okay. Well, we're we're not ending on the pessimistic. Road. We're we're going positive. We're gonna say Manny has. A it's the Padres. I'm legally obligated to end it on a pessimistic note. They're the Padres. They're the beige wallpaper of MLB, or they always have been. You know. Leaving us, leaving aside the glory days of Tony Gwynn and Wally Joyner and Andy Ashby and whichever Bennis brother it was they had at one point, like Trevor I think it was Hoffman. Andy, Trevor obviously, but like was it Andy Bennis? They had? Yeah, it was Andy Bennis. Who's the other? Alan Bennis is the other one. I'm Wasn't thinking. Al Leiter a Padre at some point? Am I misremembering that? Probably. They're the Padres. They're they're a they're a they're a, uh, uh, they're <laughs> For so long, the Padres were the Salvation Army. Actually, Al Leiter never has been on the Padres. That's interesting. interesting. Um, huh. But like, I guess that's that's the thing to me about the Padres is for once, for damn once, because of the moves they made and because of the farm system they have and because of where they are in their contention cycle, they're actually interesting for once. You actually are going to want to watch a Padres game instead of when you see it on like, you know, randomly on like a Thursday night on MLB Network being like, oh, the Padres, no thank you. Like, you're actually going to want to watch the Padres. And that's crazy because when is the last time before last year you wanted to watch Padres baseball? Um, it's a good question. Probably the Justin Upton, Craig Kimball years. That was probably. Yeah. When, when Preller, when Preller got buck wild with it and that yeah. took all of about two months before that was completely not a thing anymore. So th- that thing, like I can't not you know, like, listen, there, there always is a note of pessimism with the Padres because they are just built to, not even disappoint you. They're built just not to give you any expectations. They're just a shoulder shrug, or they have been. And now there are real expectations. Now there's a real sense of like, hey, this team could be something. And that's fun. For once, for once, the Padres might be something. It's exciting. I'm excited. Okay, good. This is We can end now because that uh, was okay. much better. That was much better. That's fair. That's fair. Much better. All right, John. Well, this is been great as always um let me think how far out are we how far we got 15 days to go before opening day okay so that puts us at a perfect point where we can do one more preview team and then just a full-on season preview the day before the opener like an opener hype pod so who's our last team who is the last team we talk about and that is a good question 
to me, there to me the interesting team I haven't talked about. I'll just provide a list. We haven't talked about the Astros. We have not. We think are interesting in a lot of different directions and in a lot of ways that maybe we can't even necessarily talk about. But talk regardless, about the they're Astros. there. We got the Angels, who I think are interesting now. Now that they got mm-hmm. Rendon, they got Otani back. Obviously, Mike Trout is there, presumably. Uh, we haven't talked about the Twins, arguably one of baseball's best teams last year, and then they've just had the misfortune of doing that thing where they meet the Yankees in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I haven't talked about the Rays. Always always interesting, the Tampa Bay Rays. We, we haven't talked about the Rays, right? No, we did talk about the Rays. Oh, we did? We did. Oh, there you go. That's, that's the Rays. That's the Rays for you. Uh, we haven't talked about your Braves. We have not. Especially now that your favorite Braves player will not be present this season. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm gonna miss Nick Markakis. I uh, I think uh, I think I'm good on the Nick Markakis experience. I, I don't think I'm uh, I'm gonna do that. I didn't think it would be because I was like, you know, Adam Duvall will be fine. Like I'm not uh, I'm not sweating the Nick Markakis <laughs> thing. I I'm I'm more sweating the Freddie Freeman stuff. That uh, that's fair. That is a much bigger that's concern. Fair. Um, uh, we haven't we haven't talked about your Braves. Uh, the Mets are always always a, a train wreck I think of we did sorts. The Mets. Did we? I think we did the Mets. I'm pretty sure we did. And the Mets. Uh, and then of course you're defending World Series champion Washington Nationals. Hmm. Hmm. I think. So I'd say from I would say from those teams, I think obviously the Angels are interesting because I think this is kind of a not quite a make or break year for them but really a year where the combination of the upgrades they've made and the short season that kind of gives them theoretically, at least a better wild card shot. This is really like, they really need to start capitalizing on the fact that they have the best player in baseball history on their team. I also don't think nice. player has any more time. I think this is it for him. I, I think, don't think so either. I think this is it. Um, or I think, I think this would have been it if it had been a regular right. year. So it's different. Like this would have been it. If I, they didn't make the playoffs, I think he would have been gone. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think obviously the Nationals are interesting just insofar, you know, they're defending World Series champions. But the one problem I have with the Nationals, they really didn't do that much this winter. Yeah. They lost Rendon. They added a few kind of guys around the edges. But that team that you're going to see on the field on the 23rd is the same team, pretty much the same team you saw on the field for uh, in Game 7. There's there's not a whole lot to change them. So maybe it's your Braves. Maybe, maybe it's time for you to do Braves episodes. You can just get all out. Just talk about how you feel about the Atlanta Braves, about, about Ronald Acuna's dreads and sunglasses combo that I, I absolutely adore. And the chain. Ronald Acuna going to go 60-60 in a 60-game season. It's going to happen. Um, I wouldn't roll it out. I, I'm, I'm here for it. Um, Braves or Angels, I think, is what we come down to. You know what we could do? Right. You know what we could do? We could do both. What's that? Let's break it up. Let's do both. Let's do Let's both. Do both. Um, Let's do both. Okay. There we go. Braves oh, Angels Mar- next I for- week. I forgot Marcelo Zuna was on the Braves now. Remember when the Angels almost had a really good trade that would have helped their pitching staff and then Artie Moreno was just like, no, I'm good. Yeah, Jock Peterson and Ross Stripling would have been a really nice addition for them. And instead Ross he was Stripling like... would have been huge for them. Yeah, he would have been great. That would have been a really, really good trade for them. All they were giving up was Luis Rangifo, Like, And they were just annoyed at the time Artie Moreno- he was taking. That's what he was annoyed about. He was just like, this is not yeah. like wrapping up soon enough. That was what it's yeah, Artie Moreno. It's going to be really funny if the difference between the Angels making the playoffs or not is Artie Moreno throwing a temper tantrum about having to wait for a complicated deal to get approved. I mean, especially when you're trying to win now. And like, if you're Epler, you're like, the fuck? 
I'm trying to save my job. This helps us now. We need Stripling. Yeah. Jock Peterson's nice, oh. but like Stripling, we need something this. Tells me, something tells me that working under Artie Moreno must not be the most fun. Uh, given that he made you. one of the most, ex- given that he went bust on one of the most expensive bets in baseball history, um, I can kind of understand why he'd be a little gun shy. But yeah, it's not the be same. But yeah, Pujols is not the same as uh, just trading for quality young-ish depth. You need Stripling. <laughs> Your rotation is dog shit. You need Stripling. I don't know. Could have used him. Yeah, it's still, like, that's an under-talked-about thing, and I would love to go back to that. So we'll go back to that next week. Um, All right, John, excited to talk Braves, Angels next week, and then baseball in two weeks. So fingers crossed. Everybody stay safe, and uh, talk to you next week, my friend. Yep. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. Goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.